Uh, welcome to Back to Excited, episode 194. My name is Arvin. Joining me as always, my colleague from PensionPlanPuppets.com. It's Acting the Fooleman. Hi, everybody. How are you doing, Fooleman? I'm not too bad. How about yourself? Doing okay. Enjoying enjoying the new year so far. It's good. This is the bleakest part ever. of the, the calendar. So if you're feeling good now, <laughs> it's a good start. It, it is it is definitely like a little depressing when like, I, don't know, I leave work at 5, 5.30. It's just pitch black. Feels like the day is done. Yeah, just I don't think there's any way to get around that. That that just takes a toll on you in terms of your feeling of energy after work. So. Oh yeah, it's like a very like well-known. It's like seasonal affective disorder, right, or something like that. Yeah, but like I think that it hits everybody. Like I've never heard anyone who's like, you know what I love the period between New Year's and Valentine's Day. Like it's just a great time. One of my roommates when I lived in when I lived in New Jersey, genuinely had like the most insane hot take to me which is that sunlight is overrated <laughs> it's overrated like people have mm. been giving sunlight too much credit in the cultural press yeah. or... so the sunlight's had a had an easy go of it for too long <laughs> oh man the vibes on sunlight are off uh <laughs> i'm gonna think about that one for a while um the toronto maple leafs are coming off a win thank god this podcast is always a little cheerier when they do that uh, they played dead a little bit in the first period against the Detroit Red Wings, but then they put on two pretty good periods, and that is enough for them to show that they're better than Detroit, who are kind of mediocre. So yeah, we're coming back after a few weeks off, and if I were to summarize what had happened uh, during that off period, I would say basically the Leafs were more or less the same, except the goaltending was worse. Um, the Leafs had a stretch where they had brilliant goaltending from both Ilya Samsonov and Matt Murray. That kind of went away. Gets a lot harder to win when your goalies are saving 890 instead of 940. Toronto being Toronto, there was some hysterical chatter in the Toronto press about that, which is putting aside the fact that every goalie everywhere ever has a bad month at some point. I'm not saying it's not a little concerning to me at times. You know, you want them to play better, but this happens. And Ilya Samsonov was quite good last night, so. Yeah, I guess it, it, it is always concerning, especially because anytime, at least for me, anytime the Leafs goaltending has a bad game, it's like, all right, this is it. We, we expect the Leafs goaltending to be bad, and it finally happened. Yeah, you can't not have an when will the shoe drop um, mentality about the Toronto Maple Leafs at this point. Too much has happened. Um, so you're always looking for the thing that's going to blow up on you. And yeah, I don't. I won't pretend it didn't cross my mind in a few of those games, but uh... right. And it's, I mean, yeah. The the Leafs, the Leafs are kind of the Leafs. We know they're they're clearly a quite good team, mm-hmm. uh, and a very large. Basically, the biggest question about them is is goaltending and how consistent it's going to be going forward. Um, at least relative to the to the rest of the league, there there are like other issues, and we'll we'll, we'll talk about them in the future at some point. But I think. You know, the, the Tavares-Marner line hasn't been as humming at 5-on-5, five five, at least offensively, mm-hmm. as I would like them to be. Um, I think their overall numbers, I haven't checked this recently, but I think their overall numbers are good, but it's like tilted much more to like low offense, low defense. Yeah, than they, I, they've turned into we a would lower want. event line, um, yeah. notwithstanding last night, where, again, they scored. Sometimes these things just have been flow, but for sure, they've been quiet, whereas the top line has been dominant. Yes, and, and I think... 
I think there's more kind of acceptance among Leafs fans now that if we want to make an upgrade anywhere, it's it's at second line left wing. Callie Yarncroke has been has been good there, mm-hmm. um, but it, it's you know much like um, much like Florida's second pairing defenseman last year. You look at this roster and you're like, okay, that's the obvious spot to to improve. Yes, and so let's hope that we don't trade for Ben Sherratt to be our second line left wing. Um, yeah. <laughs> We will actually talk about the Florida Panthers, who are mm-hmm. kind of our mystery of the week, if we were a Scooby-Doo episode. Um, but we did at first want to talk a little bit about the Toronto Maple Leafs on our Toronto Maple Leafs podcast. And so we were going to discuss the man who is always at the center of a certain amount of controversy in Toronto, and that's Morgan Riley. And Morgan Riley was out with an injury. Um Newly engaged, Morgan Riley. Congrats, Morgan. Yes, he's I hope engaged I... to Tessa Virtue, Canadian princess. Yeah, we, we better get an invite to the wedding. Yeah, um, you know, what the hell. All we did was go on air and talk about how we're kind of skeptical about your contract for like three years, so. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> how do you not love us? Uh, yeah, so Morgan Riley came back from injury. The goaltending, coincidentally or not, based on your opinion, went into a bit of a slump. During that period, the team went from winning almost like 90% of its games for a stretch there to winning slightly more than they lost um, for a bit bit of a, a bit of a minor slump, I would call it. It was very ordinary. It's not like the team was in a spiral. But when the team played really, really well with Riley out and the results weren't as great with Riley back, this naturally raised some questions as to what exactly would you say you do here in terms of Morgan Riley? That's exacerbated by the fact that until last night, Sheldon Keefe was experimenting with a five forward power play. Um, Riley is typically the number one power play defenseman, so that took him out of his job. Um, and there have always been questions about Morgan Riley as a number one defender because he's he is offensively skewed. He's not as great defensively. Sometimes his adventures in the offensive zone do lead to rushes against that are notable. Uh, TJ Brody has made a mint, bailing out Morgan Riley on those rushes. Um, and so there's been some discussion as to how good is he, how does he fit on this team, and should we be all that excited that we have him locked up for term at $7.5 million? Um, this is a guy who's 28 years old, and we've signed him well into his 30s. Mm-hmm. Um, lots of clouding factors there. For sure. I Okay, so I think one thing we can sort of dismiss right away like the Leafs offense uh kind of has cratered relative to where it was in say the 10 games prior since Riley has been back and the defense has gotten slightly worse as well at five on five I should be clear is what I'm referring to and this is in terms of like carrying play expected goals that sort of thing I think pretty immediately we can disabuse ourselves of the notion that oh Riley caused the offense to get much worse Right, I I just don't believe a single player has a single player returning has that much impact on like a team suddenly getting much worse offensively. I think the much more likely thing is well the you know the Leafs had a few hot games and had a few cold games which happened to occur when Riley came on or came back from his injury. Now there might be some adjustment to that, right? Um, you know, teams getting the playing time allocations change up, pairing switch up that sort of thing. But given Riley's you know, past. I, I'm I'm not reading into these 
what has it been, like five or so, six games since he's been back and being like, oh, well, the Leafs have had worse numbers. Riley must have had an incredibly negative impact. Yeah, and that's something that I wanted to uh, hammer on a little bit. Your opinion of Morgan Riley, whatever it is, should have been somewhat strongly formed coming into this year because he's been playing with Toronto for a hell of a long time. And 24 games with a big injury in the middle shouldn't flip over your entire opinion, whatever it was. Um, I was talking about Riley on Twitter this week, and there were a few exceptionally angry people who were yelling at me about that, the fact that he has zero goals in like 24 games um, and that he's no longer the power play number one defenseman, although he, again, went back to that role last night as the, the night went on. Um, again, whatever you think of him, you shouldn't flip it over in 20 games. Mm-hmm. Okay? And I don't see a ton of evidence that this is anything but a bit of a shooting slump, frankly. For, for most defensemen, I do not care that much about their individual goals for. Yes, and that's something I, like it's nice to have the booming shot from the point as a weapon. That is a low priority for me on a power play. The forwards should be doing the bulk of the shooting. Right, and like, I don't know, it unless you're a guy like Kale McCarr or like Rasmus Dahlin this year, where like a big chunk of your value is your own remarkable individual shooting especially for a defenseman Mm -hmm. like riley has never been a remarkable shooter for a defenseman he's always been like a as an offensive guy he's always been really about facilitating others yeah so which is that's what i care you know he had 20 goals one time and he had 10 yes but that that was like an extreme outlier relative to the rest of his career his his goal rate at five on five that year was over double what it's been at any other in any other year in his career yeah that was in um 1819 yeah and you know it was 20 when he's never had more than 10 any other time um, mm-hmm. And again, the, that's fine. His shot from the point was always more of the, the floating wrister that gets through traffic. There's nothing wrong with that. And we've seen evidence that Morgan Riley can be part of good power plays in the past. Some mm-hmm. people say, okay, but they've slumped in the playoffs or at critical times. I find it hard to pin that on Riley. But we were talking about this, and I think we both agreed. We said, like, look, Riley does this job well. It's also not the most important job. Like, you can envision Rasmus Sandin doing a lot, not all, but a lot of what Riley does on the point of the power play. Yes, I would I would agree with that. Um, Riley's individual shot numbers are a little down from last year, but generally speaking, pretty in line with the rest of his recent career. Um, at least in terms of the individual offense, which, as we said, don't care about that that much um that we care about it insofar as it portends how his impact on team offenses essentially and that's what we really truly care about for every player but you know the reason you care about individual point production is because is as a proxy to like who is involved in um actual team production right so we care about it as far as that goes but you know there isn't a sign thus far that we should be seriously concerned with Riley's ability to drive offense. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's the big thing to, to look at, at least initially. Yeah. Right? Um, and that, because that's, that's Morgan Riley's calling card. Yeah. And, and, you know, I was talking to some people who say, I think their attitude in a simplified form is that Morgan Riley deserves no credit for his offense, but bears all responsibility for his defense. And I find that a little bit extreme, even considering, yes, he is a defenseman. 
you know, he's had a, a good goal differential on the ice over the past three years. It was like 55% from 2019 to 2022. Yes. And to be sure, a very, very large chunk of this is he is mostly paid with Austin Matthews. Yes. And you can say, look, I don't care what Morgan Raleigh is doing. We could sort of downgrade there and it would be fine. I would say you have to at least acknowledge that that has worked well. Um, you can still say, I think it would have worked well with a cheaper player in that spot. Right. And, and maybe this would be somewhere that you would seek to reallocate resources in the coldest um, analysis. Which, of course, there is no cold analysis here. The Leafs like Morgan Riley. He's mm-hmm. a semi-captain. Certainly more vocal, good with the media. Has a good temperament. Likes playing in Toronto. Very well liked in the, uh, the Leafs locker room. Has been here through some pretty dark times <laughs> in the franchise. Longest you know. longest tenured leaf at this point. Yes, all of that. So all of those are factors. And we also have to consider the fact that Morgan Riley would have made more than this on the open market in mm-hmm. all likelihood. Um, I'm guessing a little bit there, but defensemen who can produce 70 points in a year tend to get paid. Um, Riley had 68 last season. Uh, His career high is 72. And that puts us in a bit of a weird spot. I personally think that defensive points, especially for guys who quarterback a power play, are one of the bigger marketing inefficiencies that are left in the NHL right now. Mm -hmm. In terms of teams giving them too much credit for the big number on the page. At the same time, I have to acknowledge the league does that. The league has a bit of a wisdom of crowds thing going on. I could be wrong. Um, and so I think if Morgan Raleigh had went to market, he probably could have gotten at least eight million a year. Right now, he's oh, I, five. I think he absolutely would have. Now, I mean, I've been saying all these things, sort of basically defending Riley from like these crazies who are like, "Oh, he is terrible. He's he's not a, not a good player, or whatever." Mm-hmm. Um, I think our opinion really is just that your opinion of Riley should not be hugely swayed by these 24 games you said exactly that right Mm -hmm. and my opinion of Riley before that (laughs) was probably lower than most people (laughs) yeah we've always had a bit of a mixed feeling about some of his performance on this podcast because it has felt at times like the Leafs needed him to be a gold-plated number one type I guess I would say like a Victor Hedman type um obviously there aren't that many Victor Hedmans in the world um, there's no obvious route to acquire one that doesn't involve you getting pretty lucky, especially mm-hmm. for a team in Toronto's position that it can't realistically expect to pick them in the top 10 of the draft ever. So, yeah, I, I think that there are a lot of factors going in here in terms of what does Riley do in an off-ice perspective? How much credit is Riley due for his on-ice results? Um, what does the market value him at? What is he actually worth? How easily could he be replaced? And finally, how much better can you do? I would say, right. yeah, and, sorry, go ahead. Oh, and I think I was of the opinion that like when he signed that extension, it's like, it's so sort of the risk averse play in some respects, which is weird to say for a long contract that goes into a def- an athletic defender's mid thirties. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was a bet on, we don't think we can replace this guy. Um, or, or we think it, replacing this guy might have some significant downside, which we just cannot afford to take with, the, and, you know, coming up on the last couple of years of Austin Matthews, 
Mitch Marner, William Dean Andrews deals. Mm-hmm. Right, and, and and on the tail end of John Tavares still being a very good player. Mm-hmm. The thing that has worried me is that right. So Riley is not Tyson Berry. Tyson Berry is has been an individual point accruer who does not have as large an impact on team offense over the course of his career as you would naively expect from his point totals. Riley has had a very large effect on team offense, but it's been more muted recently. Now there there is there is some difficulty in parsing that out because he plays a lot with Austin Matthews and like, you know, Austin Matthews does really, really well with a bunch of people. Um so Matthews gets a lot of the credit for when Matthews and Riley do well offensively. Right, um, and I can see someone saying, "Well, no, Riley actually deserves more of the credit than statistical models are giving him." Right. Um, nonetheless, I I think my prior is that <laughs> that's Matthews more than Riley, and it's sort of borne out by when we have seen Matthews's line away from Riley. He's still really, really good offensively. I don't d- doubt that he's better with Riley there than he is with like Jordy Ben or league average offensive defenseman. Mm-hmm. But. I don't think Riley is the straw that stirs the drink in its entirety there. And this creates this issue where Riley might not be as great at offense as he used to be in his athletic prime. While his defense is kind of roughly the same, and by the same I mean it's been about as poor as it's been throughout his entire career. Right. And I think that's the... So, I mean, I think... I I don't know, I feel, I feel like... I'm simultaneously arguing, like, hey, these these insane people should, like, not be this angry about Morgan Riley right now. They should have been annoyed about Riley six months ago or, or like, a year ago. Yeah. And not much has changed since then, in my opinion. Like, he, he's, a, he's a very talented offensive defenseman who I think is not quite as good as we would like him to be. Right. And the def- and I mean, the really the big thing is he's never meaningfully improved his defense. And at this point, I don't think we can even really expect a- any meaningful improvement on that end. Like, I think he just is what he is. I, I don't doubt he- that he's worked very hard to try and get a- as good at defense as he can. Mm-hmm. And he just doesn't have those skills at the NHL level. And that- that's just the way it is. Yeah. Um, so two other things that I would note. The Leafs gave Morgan Riley a big term contract. It ends when he's 36 years old. As we've already said, Morgan Riley is a highly athletic defender. There is certainly some concern that as his athletic gifts decline, his ability to read the game and process the game won't be enough um, to make him all that great. That said, with the position the Leafs are in, if you believe that he's worth a big deal now, you have a strong argument to take that risk. Um, and say, like, as yeah, as you said, like, let's cash in. Um, but I can't oh, help sorry. noticing he's about to turn 29, and it ends when he's 36. So <laughs> Yeah. One other thing I wanted to mention, like, Riley's poor goal differential this year, which we alluded to, it's mostly the result of um, kind of mediocre shooting. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can draw, given how much Riley plays with Matthews when they're both available, you can draw a pretty obvious line between Riley's poor production or Riley's the, the poor shooting percentage when Riley's on the ice and Matthews' own individual low shooting percentage. Like that, that, that is a factor. And it's simultaneously a bit of an excuse for Riley's poor 5v5 numbers, but also a sign of like, look, we're paying Riley all this money to be an offensive defenseman, but if he is relying on Austin Matthews finishing, then like, so was everyone. Yes. 
right? So then that it, it's it's an argument against the contract that he got. Yeah. If he if he's not really like the driver of the primary driver of that offense, because we know he's not a great primary driver of defensive results, so he needs to be a primary driver of offensive results in order to justify his, his salary and his position in our lineup. And he he hasn't been, and this year provides some small evidence that he still isn't. Yeah. Right. I mean, this is the Darnell Nurse argument that we've talked about. You know, we made fun of Ken Holland for basically paying Darnell Nurse for results he had while on the ice with Connor McDavid. Now, granted, Darnell Nurse got a significantly larger AAV than Morgan Riley did, but still, it's mm-hmm. it's an echo of the same thing. Is are you paying your defenseman for what your forwards do? Um, yeah, and I don't have an obvious answer. Like, that's the truth, is I think that this discussion sometimes takes the place on the ground of, oh my god, Morgan Riley is awful and unplayable and anything. And I think the, the more realistic thing is, he's kind of a 2-3 defenseman. We gave him a big deal that is not going to age super well. And we did it for a lot of reasons that are not that hard to understand. Well, there's also like a probably a very significant component of that. That's essentially Dubas' moral hazard. Yeah. If the Leafs don't make it out of the first round this year, there is like a high probability Kyle Dubas doesn't have a job. Mm-hmm. So, like, yeah, his incentives are to make the Leafs get out of the first round this year, to like maximize the next two years or one to two years where he knows that this is where I have a high probability of still running this team. Yes. And, you know, look, we think that the Leafs should be aggressive at the trade deadline because they're a highly competitive team and that's what you do. But Dubas does not have a lot of incentive to shepherd his draft picks at this point. He's quite explicitly paying for his job. Uh, sorry, playing for his job. Um, and for the record, I would have given him an extension by now. Or at least I would have offered him one. But that's not what's happening. And so we'll we'll see where things go from there. As regards Morgan Riley, that's basically just, you know, we're doing the back to excited classic where we say everybody should calm down and be nice. But... Um, I think that there's a lot of evidence that he's a good defenseman. There is a very open question as to whether he's a great defenseman. Yeah. Um, so just revisiting the point I made about um, Riley and Matthews, I have the numbers here. With Riley and Matthews together on the ice this year, um, the on-ice shooting percentage is about 7.5%. With Matthews playing away from Riley, the on-ice shooting percentage is around 14% at 5v5. Mm-hmm. Um, now... Matthew's career 5-5 shooting percentage, I think it's like in the low, it's like, I don't know, 10 or 11%. So like the, the, the fact that it's 7.5 with him and Riley together, I, I think that is mostly just variance. Um, the fact that it's uh, like 14 with Matthew's away from Riley, I think is mostly just reverting to career norms with some positive variance the other way. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but again, it's like a bad sign if you're, you're paying this offensive defenseman all this money and and i guess this this is true of almost every offensive defenseman except for probably like kale mccarr and i guess rasmus Sadin, if we believe uh what what's happened this year is, is reality but you know he, he's still very easily buffeted by this sort of randomness and i guess re- really the what it says is just that like you know everyone even very very good players ha- are hit by this from time to time, mm-hmm. right? And we, we're seeing it with Austin Matthews' personal shooting percentage this year and his personal finishing, where, like, I think it's unlikely that Matthews has just gotten worse at finishing, 
uh, he may have gotten like a little bit worse, but like probably not to this degree. And there's probably just some level of, well, things aren't going in for him at this moment. And I would expect, you know, we'll be, we'll end up the season and over his career, a lot closer to his career average than where he is right now. Could be wrong on that. I hope not. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think, I think that's kind of the, the story on Riley basically is he's, he's still the same offensive defenseman he's not so dominant that he can kind of overrun these sorts of just random variance issues. And there's some real reason to just be concerned that his offensive results have been poorer in recent years and how you disentangle his results from what Matthews has done when he's on the ice and with others is probably a very, very large component of how you view Morgan Riley as an offensive defenseman at least at 5-1-5. Yeah, I I would definitely agree. I I think... Finally, part of the reason that there's so much stress um, around Morgan Riley is that it, it is a, a door that closes other doors, so to speak. Like, the Leafs yeah. made a big commitment here. And if you look at the rest of the defense, uh, it's TJ Brody, who has 2 by 5 left. No one has complained about Brody that I've been seeing. Um, Hall, whatever you think of him. And by the way, he's, again, a little underrated. This thing ebbs and flows. A year at 2. Then you have Liljegren and Sandine, who are 2 by 1.4, you know, and Giordano, who is providing insane value at one year by $800,000. Everyone has the salary cap in the back of their mind at this point, and I really believe that having these effective defensemen, who are exceptionally cheap, and none of whom pose any term risk, um, throws Riley into sharper relief. Like, if Riley is signed at 2 times 7.5, the attitude is all very different, I think. Yes, I would agree with that. And I think if we want to evaluate the contract, I don't I don't really think this year has provided meaningful informa- like information to change our opinions on that contract, but we, just, we didn't like the contract to start. Yeah, it's like it's, right? like, we, it's we, 25 we said games. As much. Like, and, yeah. you know, whatever happens in those 25 games, it's 25 games. Like, Shit can go crazy. Gretzky had a slump where he didn't score for like 20 games at one point. You know, it's that's just the nature of the beast. Um, Are we ready to talk about our newest victim of possible variance slash being bad, which is the Florida Panthers? Sure. Yeah, let's, let's, let's move on. Yeah, so um, the Atlantic is largely playing out as you might have expected. Um, now, Boston has come back stronger than I think most people predicted. Um, they seem to be reinvigorated under Jim Montgomery and also Linus Allmark is playing out of his head. Uh, Toronto is quite good. Tampa Bay is quite good. Florida, who won the division last year, um, suddenly looks like ass. And they look like ass to such a point that they are now in distinct, distinct danger of missing the playoffs. Um, they are a Batman 500 team as the saying goes which means that they've actually lost more games than they've won um that's not what you want if you're a putative contender who doesn't have their own first round pick this year because they gave it up for ben Chirot. and we can't even make fun of them for it because it's going to fucking montreal i'm so mad about it because it would be so funny if it went to any of like 28 other teams mm. but regrettably montreal robbed them blind and now they're in a, in a situation where they're six points out of a playoff spot, which is a lot uh, at this stage of proceedings. It doesn't mean that they can't make it, but they've put themselves behind the eight ball, even if they're pretty good, actually. 
and it's just been bad luck. So we thought we would take a look at what is going on with this team. Mm-hmm. Are they just fried? Do we have to think about them again? Um, are we anticipating kind of a second half surge or anything like that? So we decided to look at what has been going on with the Florida Panthers. First thing, as nerds like us like to look at, is expected goals. And by that measure, 5v5, the Panthers are still very good. Um by actual goal differential, they're a little bit below par, which is not what you want to see. Um, their special teams look okay statistically, but things have been going very bad in terms of the pucks that actually go in, and despite our petitions, that's still how they award wins and losses. So, right now, the Panthers seem to be in a brutal finishing slump. Um, now, they have been missing Anthony Duclair for the whole season. Um, he was a very good finisher. So... A little bit of that certainly hurts them. And you might note they had a changeover where they they gave up Jonathan Huberdeau and Mackenzie Wegar. They got Matthew Kachuk, who has been good. Um, they also lost Mason Marchman. This should be a good team. Mm-hmm. Um, and th- sorry, there's one other big change that happened that a lot of people tend to blame for what's been going on. And that's they changed coaches from Andrew Brunette to Paul Maurice. Right. So I think... One thing that's worth noting right off, the, right off the top, you said, you know, the Panthers appear to still be a very good team by, for example, 5v5 expected goal difference. And and that's true. Mm-hmm. Um, they are, I, I can pull up the numbers in, in just a second, but by uh, expected goals for percentage at 5v5, five five, they are well above average. They're in the top 10 uh, with like, say, at, let's say eighth, right? 54% expected goals percentage. That's very good. Mm-hmm. The thing is, last year they were better. Last year, they were dominant in terms of chance generation. Um, they had, I think, what was quite clearly the best offense in the league. And even if we want to put some numbers to it, despite them being a good team by expected goal differential, their expected goal differential um, last year, or, or sorry, com- from this year compared to last year, is down by about uh, 50- 40%. They were at an expected goal differential of 0.74 per 60 minutes last year. Now it's 0.46. That's a big loss. That adds up so, real quick. Those are v- both very good numbers, but one is much, much, much better. And something that gets underrated when teams change is like people focus on the things that they, they do badly, um, which makes sense, of course. But there's also this thing that they do well, yet simultaneously do n- not as well as they used to do. And that is actually responsible for a huge chunk of goals that they're losing. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so I think that's kind of the first thing to, to mention. Right. The second is that last year they were a solid finishing team. They, they got some value out of that. And this year they simply are not. Yeah, they're way below expected. The puck is not going in. And this is a year where a lot of teams seem to be finishing quite well. It's a high scoring year. Mm-hmm. Um, not happening for Florida. Now, one thing that you could theorize this to, and th- I think this is especially taken, taken root on or taken hold. Uh, on special teams where the finishing has like deserted them even more. Uh, Jonathan Huberto was one of the best passers in the league. Mm. And you could very easily see him creating chances for others that were higher XG than most public XG models were able to discern due to like goaltender positioning and puck movement and player movement and all that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And I think Florida, I haven't watched them enough this year to know how this has evolved, but I thought for a few years prior, they've had 
kind of quite clever power plays. They they use behind the net uh, plays very often. We've seen the Leafs go to a look like that, and Florida used it, I think, about as much as anyone. Um, they use movement really, really well, and of course, having people like Huberto as you know the setup guys was tremendously valuable. Absolutely, it's worth so I think noting. The- Hockey Viz mm-hmm. still thinks they're generating chances now. We've said before, and we'll say again, there are limitations in terms of what public models can do with shot location to evaluate power plays because the name of the game with a lot of power plays is how many good lateral passes can you make to shooters. And that's harder to measure. As you say, Huberto was probably very good at it. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, he is very good at it, is what I'm saying. <laughs> right. So, I mean, there there's a few things for the Panthers that have, like, gotten bad but i think the biggest thing is like well why has their offense why has their five on five offense gone from easily the best in the league to like merely quite good mm-hmm. and right? I think, marchment I think... mm-hmm. you know going hurts declare being out hurts um huberto maybe to a certain extent hurts um that said you look at this team and the defense stands out to me as being pretty questionable it's it's basically Aaron Ekblad and friends at this point Mackenzie Wegar who was previously kind of the most underrated player and then everybody had heard of him after a certain point and he was no longer very underrated uh went to the Calgary Flames and now you look at this defense group and it doesn't seem that great I may be fishing for explanations at this point because it is a little bit strange um Sergei Bobrovsky has not been terrific uh, he's, he hasn't been like unplayably bad for what it's worth on the year. Um, but he's had some, some rough slumps. Um, there's something that I did want to notice, um, which is kind of weird. First of all, in terms of time spent with the lead, the top five teams in the NHL are Boston, Carolina, Florida, Toronto, and Vegas. That's four teams who pretty much anyone would consider top-tier contenders. And the Florida Panthers. It's a little weird. And, you know, it's natural. If you're a good team, you should be in the lead a lot. But Florida seems to make a habit of nuking these mostly bad teams and then not doing so well in other matchups. Now, I don't want to go too far with this. It's not fully fleshed out. And also, every team is going to play better against worse competition. It's not unique to Florida, and it doesn't make them frauds. But I noticed that in December, they put up these huge blowout wins, so four-plus goals, against Vancouver, Seattle, Detroit, Columbus, and Montreal. That's basically four bad-to-very-bad teams, and then Seattle, who are okay. Um, And yet, they finished underwater in goals differential for the month, and with a losing record. And so, it can be tempting, let's say, to read in that maybe they aren't as good against good competition as they ought to be. I don't want to run too far with this, but the playoffs are on my mind. Because last year, Florida showed up, struggled to dispose of the Washington Capitals, who were not that great, and then got smoked by the Tampa Bay Lightning in round two. I don't know if you can infer anything from that or if this is just noise. We are very much in the range where it could be just noise. It could be, yeah. I, th- I think I think the tricky thing is it's like you could see maybe, I guess, a hypothetical story which, which uh, jives with all those facts is like teams have adjusted to what Florida does offensively and teams with like 
better teams that have like decent defensemen and decent defensive forwards are better able to like shut it down mm-hmm. right so like they can still they still have these numbers that point them as like a, a good team on average but like their their setup is is designed in some way or is such that better than average teams can shut it down much more easily than teams where they have a significant talent advantage where they can just run them over with offense mm-hmm. but i mean i i think that that's that's something that like front offices should be trying to figure out and and you know you, you need pretty you need to marry scouting and data there for sure um in a way that we we simply haven't haven't done with florida as of yet um the other thing worth noting is they have they have an inefficient goal differential mm-hmm. in some sense right they are worse their record is worse than their goal differential would indicate um as far as we know this team many most teams do not have the ability to consistently be clutch and like score like win one goal games and things like that so generally speaking goal differential is a pretty good proxy for how good a team is and florida's goal differential is like average-ish or maybe even a, a little bit above uh i think it's above average at five on five and then when you factor in penalty yeah. kills and, and power play it's it's worse the than, show is minus average. four on nhl.com yes. yeah so the there's like a combination of things right i think i think the story that has making people talk about florida effectively is that they, they from afar anyways without having watched a ton of florida games just like a few that i've caught here and there they have been a kind of average team or that has gotten a little bit unlucky, which has made the results below average. And people are really responding to them being below average. Mm-hmm. I think a very interesting thing is, well, how do they go from being one of the best in the league to being average? Yes. Yeah. And, and that's a real question. And the crazy thing is, I think we both said Huberto for Wegar, uh, who, sorry, Huberto and Wegar for Kachuk mm-hmm. is a sensible long-term trade based on player age and contract that makes them a little bit worse in the short term. Yes. And I, I would stand by that 100%. Matthew Kachuk has actually not been the problem at all. He's been playing. Oh, he's everything. been phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah. He's, um, he's an NHL all-star for whatever that's worth. <laughs> so was Leo Komarov. But uh, yeah, Kachuk actually deserves it. And uh, at the same time, you do notice that loss. And then again, of course, you know, Marshman and Declare having career years and now being gone or injured the entire season it hurts um i think everyone expected florida to take a step back like we did too I, like i was saying they're gonna drop 15 points right now they're on pace to drop a lot more than 15 points mm-hmm. um and that's the thing i think florida is better than this and i think that they are unfortunate to be where they are even though they're flawed they dropped back into the range where a run of modest bad luck could sink them. And they've taken on so much water at this point that even if they recover their form, they are going to have to outplay a bunch of Metropolitan wildcard teams um, to make it back into the playoffs. Yeah, as of right now, I think it looks like um, it's going to be five Metro teams in the playoffs, right? Like the, the four through eight in the Atlantic are behind, as far as I know. Yeah, oh, I, sh- I should add, um, Buffalo is actually ahead of mm-hmm. um, the Florida Panthers, and we've kind of given them short shrift because, you know, the Panthers won the division last year. Buffalo hasn't made the playoffs in a decade. But Buffalo is also, like, they have a gangbusters offense. Buffalo's offense is really legit. I mean, there there is, like, 
I Tage Thompson has had a bonkers, bonkers year. Um, there, there's, I, I am still like sort of leery of Thompson and in some, and it truly buying him is like okay, he is one hundred percent going to be just like an elite guy going forward, just because so much of his value is finishing. He like he's the he's been the best finisher in the league this season by like a lot, or maybe it's him and, and Jason Robertson. Yeah. Right. And I'm always just like a little scared to fully buy in on on that. Hey, this guy suddenly can finish like crazy now. Yeah. Um, now, now that said, you watch Chase Thompson and you're like, I know that that's legit. Like oh, it looks yeah, that, like you see what's happening because he's huge and he has insane hands. Well, and, and even going back to when he was drafted, like yeah, his he, he, he. It's not like this is uh, some guy who was never expected to have a shot suddenly developing a shot. Like he was expected to be a good shooter, and now he has become an absolutely phenomenal shooter. I mean, I, I think at this point, I think most people are, are, are convinced by Thompson. I'm, I'm very close to that as well. I'm just like still a little scared that I'll, I'll say, oh, you know, finally, like Tate Thompson is, is one of the very best players in the league. And then he'll start finishing at like a plus 4% rate instead of like a plus 20% rate, which is what he's doing right now. Yeah. Like there's no scenario where I think Tate Thompson turns out to be a pumpkin. It's not that crazy. Yeah, he's definitely yeah. still like a, a good player at least. Right. No, I, like, and that's what I'm saying is like we're all clear on that. But it wouldn't be the craziest thing to me if he dropped back to like a 30-35 goal guy who gets 70-75 points a year um, as like the low kind of end thing. And it's like, that's still really good. It's just right now he's annihilating the NHL and he would be winning the, the Rocket Richard, I believe, if it weren't for... Uh, Connor McDavid, who has just decided that he's had enough, <laughs> is going to run away with the trophy. Um, yeah. Anyway, we, we we got sidetracked into talking about Tage, who is frankly more fun than the Florida Panthers. But uh, yeah, I think Florida is better than this. But I think that they're just flawed enough that this could ruin them. So, boy, having given up that first for Ben Chirot, though, we said that that was a huge mistake. And uh, I think it's turned out to be. I mean, you you, you made the point. Like they, they've dug themselves a hole that it's going to be really, really hard to get out of. And it's like kind of unclear how they're going to react to that. Yeah, like they don't have any incentive to stop trying. Right. Um, they don't have their first. They are in a million ways kind of present oriented. Um, but yeah, like... Do they start trying to to make any kind of trades um, to be, try and salvage this season? Or what do they do? I mean, I think that it's a very interesting situation for Belzito. And I'm sure he's feeling a bit uncertain at this point. I don't know that his job is in danger. But yeah, like the team that he's built suddenly doesn't look as good by record as he would have liked. Yeah, it would be kind of interesting because, I mean, Duclair is someone who, who I've thought about as like a potential Leafs acquisition, actually. It's a little risky because he hasn't played at all this year, and I don't know what his expected timeline would be. Like, I don't know if he's going to be able to play much, if at all, before the trade deadline. Yes, I, I mean, you can certainly see the argument for keeping Declare. That said, Declare has another year left after this one at three million. Mm -hmm. So, I don't know if that alters Florida's thinking, which I'm sure they're trying to contend next year for sure. Yeah, I, so they, they might not want to do anything, but maybe trade off some UFAs if they're. Yeah, which I don't. And I don't they don't. Yeah, they don't have anyone like tremendously interesting as a UFA. I mean, unless they want to flip thirty-eight-year-old Eric Stahl, mm -hmm. who I legitimately 
have forgotten several times this year was still playing. So, yeah, I mean, it's all on the table. You could also get Radko Gudis if you really felt so inclined. You know, I, I, I really think the least D is missing an element of absolutely murdering people's brains. <laughs> yeah, you know, he was a good player at his peak, even though he did murder people's brains. But, you know, he's getting older and now primarily it's about the, the brain murder. Yes. So and, and yeah, anyway. Radka Gudis is here to take bad point shots and murder people's brains, and he's all out of point shots. <laughs> oh man. Anyway, it's weird. You know what? Every year there's some team where a combination of injuries and bad luck and bad timing and just like general regression. Like I, 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 I think regression. probably a, a lot of players probably also just had like career years right you mentioned yeah like you hard to replace the career years of, of duclair and marchment who both aren't there due to injury and leaving in free agency um but like that that seemed to happen sort of up and down their roster um i, I don't know how about too much about the years that like barkov and sam reinhardt and sam bennett are having but it wouldn't surprise me if they were just like a little bit worse and and you know the combination of a lot of people just getting a little bit worse a little bit of bad shooting luck um and you know the the team getting a little bit worse from the from the Huberto uh, Weger Kachuk trade has just put yeah. them in a situation where yeah, as you said, they're they're, they're they now became a, a team who is buffeted enough by by bad luck that they can take them out of a playoff spot, right? And yeah, yeah the, the the lack of shooting and finishing touches really hurt them this year compared to last. Yeah, I, I was just on the notes of Barkov and Reinhardt. Barkov is playing pretty well, but he missed ten games. And Reinhardt is having a bit of a slump. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. There's a, just before we depart the topic, I think I've mentioned this before, but there's um, a concept in The Prince by Machiavelli where he says that, like, Fortuna can come out and get you basically any time, but the prudent prince prepares himself against bad luck as best he can. And if Fortune's really out to get you, you're just fucked. But... If you prepare, you can insulate yourself against ordinary bad luck. That is basically what's happening to the Florida Panthers, which is that they got to a point where they weren't insulated against ordinary bad luck, and now they're really in trouble. And it's very hard to um, insulate yourself against yeah. bad luck. Like, I mean, the Leafs are not insulated against bad luck, at least in the sense of like if, if their goaltenders performed worse than their quote-unquote true talent for a season, like yeah, the, the Leafs would be scuffling as well. Yeah, absolutely. Now that said, would they miss the playoffs entirely? Maybe. I mean, it's it's certainly possible. I think the one way in which the Leafs have, people have talked about about the, talked a lot about the Leafs' injuries, which have been numerous, but it's very important who has to note who has never been injured. Nylander, yeah. Marner, Matthews, Tavares, yeah. all perfectly healthy thus far. That's a big deal. And the Leafs have more offensive strength, but more defensive depth. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, like, it was a bit of a trade-off there. Like, they can't replace any of those four players. Yeah, um, if, if any one of those four players goes down, except maybe with the exception of Tavares, I think we quite quickly become a one-line team. Yeah. Even with it... Like, what's the second line in the event that Tavares goes down? Like, Yarncroft, Kerfoot, Marner? I think like, maybe you can survive that. Yeah, but... I, I wonder if they move Marner back up to the first line and play Nienander at center. It feels like that happens every goddamn year. At some point, <laughs> this, there's, this like, will, there's a crisis, and we're like, Willie, guess what? This will be the year William Heat enters the center. <laughs> I feel it. <laughs> you could probably do it. It's just like it's so... Uh, anyway, it's silly. But uh, anyway, so yeah, that's our survey of the Panthers. Mm -hmm. um, 
There was something I wanted to get on my soapbox about just a teensy tiny bit. Uh, after the World Junior uh, Hockey Championship, Canada won the gold medal. Congratulations to them. Connor Bedard is going to be the first overall pick, and he's going to make a franchise very, very happy. Now, and all we do is we uh, hope it's not Montreal. I'm really pulling for it to be Anaheim, mm. because then he's away over there, and we don't have to worry about them. And I don't want Chicago to get anything too good. Sorry. Anaheim would be great. San Jose would be nice. Mm? I mean, the, the Blue Jackets would be kind of annoying, because they're in the East at least, but like yeah. better than a lot of the other alternatives. Like, not Montreal. And Montreal frightens me because, one, they're pretty bad. And, two, they do have that Florida first floating around, which could end up in the lottery, as we've just been discussing. So, yeah, definitely send Batard West if we can. Um, however, the World Junior Ch uh, Hockey Championships took place. Uh, Luke Tardif, who is the president of the International Ice Hockey Federation, said, That was the best medicine for Canadian hockey and international hockey after this difficult year. I mean, more than one thing can certainly go into that, mm -hmm. but the thing that has been difficult about Canadian hockey this year, and I think most people's conception, specifically the World Junior Team, has been the allegation that uh, multiple players from a previous World Juniors team participated in a gang sexual assault, which was horrific. Hold that thought. Um, Logan Mayu, who was... Uh, a subject of controversy, and rightly so, because he took intimate photographs of uh, a woman while they were performing a sex act and then showed it to his friends. Uh, he got drafted by the Montreal Canadiens anyway in 2021. And there has been this weird trend, uh, and I'm specifically thinking of like Renaud Lavoie, who is a Quebec commentator, of posting a whole lot of Logan Mayu highlights. And at one point... Uh, Lavoie posted Mayu scoring a goal with the emoji of the finger shushing over the lips. And, you know, even allowing for something being lost in translation, I can't think of a ton of interpretations of that that I like. Mm -hmm. But it's part of this whole overtone. These are two different examples of this, this trend where it's like, well, maybe if they win a bit after, it's kind of okay. And that feels to me like the thing that people are trying to get away from. It doesn't matter how good they are. The point is, when you do something this morally wrong, you have to make moral amends if possible, or there have to be consequences, but it's not cancelled out in any meaningful way by your performance. It's especially weird with Logan Mayu, because he's a D plus two. Okay, this is his second season after being drafted. He's a 6'3 player playing for the London Knights of the OHL. Even putting aside any feelings that I might have about him, it's not that impressive to be a point-per-game defender at that point if you have an NHL future. And yet, there is this smirking undertone, I have to say, where it's like, it's almost as if the Habs are being applauded for picking him at this point, when I'm like, no, they made a very cynical decision. Now, to be clear, if you want to say, look, he was an underage uh, individual, he made, he, com com sorry, he committed this offense. He has tried to make amends. We believe in forgiveness for all that sort of stuff. Make that argument straight on. But like, this is too serious a thing to be tap dancing around it and smirking and winking at the camera every time he scores a goal. Mm -hmm. 
I know this feels like I'm reading a lot in, but it's happened enough that I feel like it's definitely something that's going on, and it pisses me off. Yeah, I, it's it's not the first time Lavoie has like tweeted a Mayu highlight with like some some odd caption that it is just sort of yeah, as you said, tap dancing around around yeah, the like, issue here. Say what say what you're gonna say. Like say you know like this is a good goal or something, but also be like, okay, I think that he's paid his debt to society. If you want to make that argument, right. But like, Le- put, don't tell me that it's so impressive he scored a junior goal that now it doesn't matter. Yeah, Lavoie puts uh, player claims on waivers in all caps, but like is, you know, much more, much more delicate with, with this in some sense, which is, is, is odd. I agree. Uh, on, on the World Junior thing, I mean, yeah, I, I think the, the statement you read from Tardif is just incredibly insensitive to the victims of the, uh, of the sexual assault that that was i guess i guess i have to say like allegedly uh allegedly occurred um from the 2018 world juniors team but also insensitive to i mean i think the the bigger thing about about hockey canada and about canadian hockey generally that has been difficult for many people to stomach and it's not something that people shouldn't have known for for some time but it's that there is a tremendous issue from very low levels on whereby a lot of the people involved in Canadian hockey, whether it's players or uh, management or executives or whatever, are like systematically using the power that they have within this world uh, and leveraging it for abusive purposes. Mm-hmm. Right? Like that that's the fundamental issue. So it's not only insensitive to, you know, the, the victims of, of the 2018 World Juniors, uh incident for lack of better term i don't like that word in this context but to all the people who have been hurt and impacted by the myriad of issues that and myriad of incidents that have occurred doubtless many unreported um yeah by people involved with in some capacity uh involved with hockey canada in some capacity right and it's like no amount of play on the ice really is is a medicine for that because they're entirely different things. Yeah, and like that's the thing that we gotta hammer. The whole problem here is the idea that the performance of the hockey team or the player on the hockey team has moral value mm-hmm. outweighing other stuff. And it shouldn't. Yeah. And I will also add, you know, look, the Habs are the Leafs' traditional rival. For me, they're really the only rival in my heart. They piss me off. You know, it's like a Batman and Joker thing. This should be outside that. I would be saying the same thing if it were any other franchise. I mean, you can say there wouldn't be the same amount of press. Uh, That's true. About a draft pick. But, yeah. And to be clear... There have been Leaf players who have done things that I'm not proud of. You know, there was the, the, frankly, very disappointing uh, incident with Austin Matthews in, in Arizona a couple of seasons back. And I thought that was shitty. And I said as much. And, like, that sort of thing should be outside. Like, I'm not trying to go up for a dunk on, you know, players for, from other franchises for this. Because this should be outside hockey. And the only way we're ever going to get around on this sort of stuff is if we say, okay, certain things 
are beyond what happens on the ice. And they've got to be dealt with in a moral way before we can turn our attention back. Um, so don't tell me that the World Juniors being won by this different uh, Team Canada is medicine in any sense. It doesn't cure anything. Right. The issue with Hockey Canada wasn't that we weren't producing enough good players. Yeah. They've done that with great success for a long time, and it has been a cloak for what turns out to be a lot of bad shit. So, yeah. yeah. Anyway, I know that that was a bit of a, a fire and brimstone rant by our, our standards, but I felt like it, it was worth no, it. No, I mean, it, 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 it's accurate. Like, it, it's, it's a very consistent problem from low levels on up. I mean, we saw this. This really came to the fore uh, in a different context in, in 2020, where people started... Or at least media started reporting and discussing more. Like, hey, hockey is can be pretty racist, mm-hmm. and you know, players of color and players from underrepresented uh, backgrounds are like kind of quite often ostracized and hurt in pretty severe and awful ways. And this is, you know, in the same lines as that, right? There, there's just a lot of entitlement and abuse of power that occurs at across all levels and there are a lot of people um very specifically women who find themselves you know victimized by that right and and have you know pretty horrific actions perpetrated against them by people leveraging their power and their their clout within this community as as a cloak as you said as, as a shield from from consequences as in a shield from their actions being brought to the public light yeah so like that's all i can say i guess is that this just it should be kind of separated mm-hmm. when something like this happens it's got to be evaluated on its own terms and it shouldn't be uh trash talk or or something that like is a way to get one up on some other franchise right it, it, it's it's like not that. a it's not a what about thing and it, it's not like yeah. oh like the habs are bad because they did this it's like it's like the, what the habs are doing is a is a symptom of just this general culture in hockey where, where they they feel empowered to make a decision like this right and absolutely you know that that's that i don't doubt for a second that other teams would have done that if it got later in the draft. I I, I think the Habs drafted him because they thought another team was going to draft him before they get another yeah. pick. Like, and, and that was their argument. And, mm-hmm. you know, for the record, I don't think that that minimizes the fact no. that they did. They're the ones who actually but did. I don't do think it. they're yeah. wrong. <laughs> yeah, I suspect they're correct. So, yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, I think that was all I had. Do you have anything else you wanted to say? Uh, no, not in particular. I mean, I think, uh, obviously, sorry to end the podcast on a much more weighty topic than. You know, oh, I'm not sure Morgan Riley's contract is all that great, or like, yeah, <laughs> Florida really sucks now, eh? Um, but I mean, this is an important issue, uh, and I think the way people have the, the two examples that you brought up, I think, are very good examples of a way in which hockey media and culture is toxic in this exact same way. It's like we've learned nothing. Like the entire point is, as you said, the people treat people treat what happens on the ice as justification for anything that happens off of it you know this guy did something terrible but he is he's a bright young future right or he's a bright future as as a as a hockey star we can't like can't do anything to hurt that and you know that happens at lower and lower levels and it leads to pretty horrific situations like the one that we've 
uh, scene brought up with the 2018 World Junior Team. Mm-hmm. Uh, so on that cheery note, uh, thank you all for listening. You can catch all of mine and Fuleman's work at petchandfanpuppets.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at RV and AT Fuleman. We'll see you next week.